Hambani kahle ukuthulama kube kini Hambani kahle ukuthulama kube Hambani kahle Hambani kahle Hambani Hi everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining me on another episode of Thoughts and Tea, Tea and Tea with your girl T and me. Can I take this moment to say go well and peace be with you to our brother George Floyd, our sister Breonna Taylor and everybody that we've lost to the hands of brutality from people who were supposed to be protecting us otherwise. I cannot begin to imagine what their family is going through right now. And it's sad that as a nation, black people and our allies had to revolt amidst a national, international pandemic to be heard, for justice to prevail. It's sad. And while we fight for our rights, let's not forget to wish peace for the souls of our dearly departed. On our last episode on suicide in black communities with Dr. Kamisha Spates, we were talking about Things that we can do to educate ourselves on suicide so that we could, one, better deal with it, two, prevent it. More than anything, that information is very crucial right now because the state of affairs right now can drive people to do the unthinkable. And I don't want to lose any more of you. We've lost enough of us. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. So while we raise our fists, and while we are angry, while we are sad, let's not forget to educate so we can thrive. We don't need to just be surviving. We need to be thriving. So without talking too much... Here is the second part of our podcast on suicide with Dr. Kamisha Space. Enjoy. Love and harmony. We have to know what our cultural beliefs are around suicide. Sometimes those things, our beliefs will fuel the myths and sometimes they don't. But I, I want to point out a couple of different um, myths that, in the event that you hear them, you automatically go on guard and put your and put your uh, your guard up to start to defend and deconstruct these myths that are prominent in our community. Number one is that black folks don't go to therapy. Okay, the minute you hear any of that, and we hear it in different ways, right? Like the way our parents and our grandparents may talk about it may be very different than what we talk, how we talk about it, but you're going to hear some aspect of that. And, and in fact, I'm pretty sure your, re, your listeners are saying, yep, heard that one before, um, because it is simply not true. And so that's one of the myths that we got to tackle head on when we see it. Secondly, I think is that black folks don't get depressed. Okay, that is so far from the truth. Um, we may not exhibit it the same way. We may not share it 
the same way. We may be a bit farther along in, in the severity of our depression when we actually do um, uh, seek treatment, which is, and that is the case. We, research has affirmed that. Um, and, and so that is a myth. When you hear it, get ready to defend that and to deconstruct it. Um, the strong black woman and the macho man thing that we hear so often. and Yes, so often, so commonly talked about. That is another myth that... Um, that uh, and, and actually, those that one's more of a, co- a complex myth because you know there is some value that uh, in, in my work with with interviewing Black folks and talking with them about suicide and mental health, and they say, well, we're strong. And I mean, granted, when you look historically at some of the things we've gone through and a number of the things we've overcome and the adversities and those sorts of things, and so I'm not trying to take away from some of the cultural resilience and the social resilience that we've been able to uh, develop, but that should not overshadow the fact that we are still human and that not everybody fits one bill. And 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 so the strong black woman and macho man thing, um, it's okay to talk about that, but just make sure that you're on guard when you, you know, when, when, when with where the conversation could go next. And then lastly, suicide is a white thing. That is a myth that I have been hearing from the first day I started doing this work over a decade ago. Suicide is a white thing. That's a cultural belief. That's a very common cultural belief. And it also oftentimes will fuel the stigma around who commits suicide, what they look like, and who doesn't and what they look like, right? And so we got to debunk that myth that suicide is a white thing. It is absolutely not a white thing. I have the data to show it. Um, It's happening in our communities uh, even more than uh, than ever uh, in the past. And so uh, we just have to think about the fact that um, these existing myths, some of which are very cultural um, specific and they, they, you know, they're cultural beliefs, but they also fuel uh, stigma. So that's certainly one of the way, one of the things that I think we need to, to look into um, in our communities. Um, and so the other thing in terms of ways to help uh, in addition to de- debunking the myths, is to know the warning signs. You know, know what, and you asked this earlier in the interview, what, what what do we need to look for if a person's suicidal? Essentially, what I gave you were warning signs, right? And so ways to help the individual is to know the warning signs. And don't be afraid to ask directly if a person is feeling suicidal. One of the myths is that if you talk to them about it or if you ask them, that it's gonna actually drive them to suicide. And that is not the case. Um, Again, 90% 90 plus percent of all suicides are preventable. And one of the key ways that you can prevent a suicide from happening is to actually open up the door and have a conversation. It is okay to ask a person, are you thinking of hurting yourself? I cannot stress that enough. If you want to help, you know the signs and you be open to the conversation and what that may mean. Now, I get it may cause a little uneasy. The person says yes, but this is where you can then take action next. You limit their access to harmful items. If you know the person has a firearm, for instance, or if you know that the person um, has been collecting pills or whatever it may be. So you do your best to limit their access to harmful items. And then you continue to check in with them. You know, I don't care if it was a year ago that the person mentioned that they were um, thinking of harming themselves or talking about wanting to die. You just continually check in um, with them and continue to keep the line of communication open. And then also help them to connect with others. 
um, you will be surprised on what a quick Google search can do, right? You know, look up suicide support groups in Akron, Ohio, or suicide support groups in whatever on a college campus. You'd be surprised, but there are a lot of existing um, groups to help them connect with others that may be feeling the same way, but not even just outside of the household. I mean, as Black folks, we're more likely to go to friends, research firms. We're more likely to go to friends and family and loved ones before we are a total stranger. So helping them to connect with others that um, can also continue to check in and with them, keep them safe, limit their access to harmful items. Suicide prevention really is a, a cooperation and coordination of multiple parties. So you shouldn't feel like it's just you. And if you don't do, you know, X, Y, and Z, then this is it. You know, no, it should not be just you. It's really a matter of compiling a team and rallying folks together so that they can then assist in this, um, in this, in the support of the individual, a good friend of mine, I'm going to share this. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, had a cousin that, uh, attempted to take her life. She was dealing with some postpartum depression and she, um, she, uh, attempted suicide. And when she got out of the hospital, what her family decided to do was to throw her what they called a love shower which I hadn't heard that before. We've all heard of a baby shower, right? But the love shower was they picked her up from the hospital. Uh, family members cooked her favorite food. Uh, other individuals, um, I think one one of them scheduled a massage for her and an in-house pedicure. And, um, and they allowed her to cry when she got home on their shoulders. And they just, they were there and they said, we're here for you and anything you need. They cleaned her house and they just surrounded her with love. And I'm not saying that that is um, the end all be all. Once you do the love shower, everything is great. But I am saying that just the, the whole idea of rallying around an individual and supporting them in untraditional ways um, or in a way that they would prefer is always a good thing. Okay, definitely. Because the funniest thing that I always keep saying to people is, um, you know, when someone is going through depression and I've spoken to people about this too, is, you know, physically, you know that, oh, okay, I have my people. But in the moments that you're feeling these things that you're feeling, your brain finds a way to tell you that no one cares or you're going to be bothering people. People have better things to be doing in their life. So you feel so alone. And then it's almost like you feel like you have to carry it all on your own. Sure. And so sometimes just like this love shower thing they did was almost like breaking the ice to let her know you are really not alone. You don't have to do this by yourself. That's right. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very good thing. And hopefully people can adopt like that idea and um, make it very obvious. Cause I think also as humans, we get used to the, Oh, I'm there for you. Though sometimes we don't express that love sure. and concern that we have for the people in our lives. And so even though subconsciously they know you're there, sometimes hearing these things on a regular or, you know, sparingly helps reaffirm that. Yes. Yes, it does. It, it really does. It really does. And and she, and she actually said that, you know, that this was, I didn't realize how much I needed it, you know, and, and, and they're continuing to, and I, and I always remind my friend, I'm like, well, just continue to check in with her. Right. But yeah. nonetheless, that was a, that was a game changer for her. And she was very, very grateful and appreciative of that. All right. 
Sweet. I'm taking notes. notes. Okay. So now we talked about support systems and you said, well, simple Google search could give us some, but um, what support systems are in place for us and, or let's say in general and what resources for suicide prevention and intervention are available? If there are some that you know of the top of your head and you don't mind actually listing them so people have an idea too. Sure. Well, I'll bring this one up first because I know the numbers demographically, um, Blacks in the United States, um, are they self-identify as the most religious group in the country. And so what I mean by that is um, um, the the survey that was conducted by the Pew Institute um, some year, a few years back showed that when it comes to being uh, a part of a religious family or religious group or organization uh, or a member of a church or even just having a prayer life, um, we tend to rank higher than other groups. And so uh, one of the first places is definitely um, your, your local church. Um, although I understand the dynamics, the cultural dynamics and how uh, stigma, stigma works in the black community. And in many cases that could include the church. Yep. Um, not all churches are like that. And there <laughs> are more churches that are starting to get on board and offer support for your mental health and your well-being. So I would say finding a um, a, a faith-based organization that is a bit more progressive in their thinking around how to support folks that are dealing with mental illness and suicidal ideations. Um, and so the other is um, uh, the research really shows that um, racial, we call this racial congruence. And there, uh, there appears to be for a good number of folks, um, this interest in wanting to, if they do go to therapy or talk to a mental health clinician, they want to talk to somebody who looks like them or who has gone through some of the things they've gone through, uh, whether it's racially speaking, uh, they want similarities, whether it's sexual orientation, whatever it may be. And so, um, so there's a number of, a couple of, well, not a number, but there's a few resources, uh, that you can go to, to, um, actually locate, uh, an individual, uh, clinician or mental health counselor that works in your area and or um, is a part of your uh, is a, is a similar from a similar racial or ethnic uh, or marginalized background. And so one that comes to mind is there's a website called Black Girls Therapy. And number one, she has a podcast and she's also a licensed therapist. And so I really find um, a, a number of the topics that she brings up very culturally specific to the Black community. But then two, she has a tool on her website. It's called um, Finding a Therapist. And you can click on that. And that is specifically what she has tried to do is compile a list of other Black therapists in the country. Um, and you can search by state. And you can also search and see, you know, if any of them specialize, let's say, in dealing with um, any form of, let's say, gender dysphoria or any sort of um, other um, specific uh, um, issue that may be uh, more so experienced by marginalized group members. So you can look that way. Um, and and so there's that. And then also there's the, um, of course, the suicide hotline. There is the uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, that's another website and uh, in which you can actually reach out and connect with someone. There is a Facebook self-reporting feature. I think Facebook now has incorporated some 
um, some reporting features. If you see something on Facebook where you think the individual might be at risk, or if it, even if it's yourself, um, there's the Lifeline chat. Um, and, and then there's a number of other websites where you can just get information to raise your awareness on warning signs and risk factors and protective factors. And so um, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, the International Association for Suicide Prevention. Um, so some of what I've given here are more specific to the Black community and then others are more general, which would, of course, then um, include the Black community. Okay, wonderful. And the ratio of congruence, am I getting it correct? Yep. It's, I think it's very important because sometimes when we're dealing with things, we are not actually even sure what we are dealing with. So someone might think, okay, I might be suicidal, but I'm not sure. Maybe it might just be a phase. And then they fear that if they go see someone who cannot relate, they might actually just define um, them and say, okay, you are actually suicidal when they were not even sure themselves to be, to begin with. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and then we also have to think about how, how we as, as black folks think, right. And in, in many cases, um, and I, I won't, I won't say everybody, but in many cases we think about ourselves in terms of our identities, right. We see ourselves, for instance, I see myself as a black woman first, right? And then all these other things, a professor, a mom, a wife, so on and so forth. And that's not an uncommon thing. There's a number of folks that really have their identities um, and they're very ingrained in everything they do, including how they see the world. In fact, white folks are like that. So nonetheless, if we think of our lives like that, we have to also think about, okay, well, how are we going to think of ourselves or how are we going to see ourselves if we are dealing with a mental illness or if we are suicidal? Well, our therapists need to know and understand that when you're conducting a suicide risk assessment, it needs to be done in a cultural context. So I understand that. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and this last question, which that, that comes before the other ones, which came up on some things you talked about. I've actually brought it up in most of the episodes with other um, very knowledge, knowledgeable and brilliant Black professors that I've spoken to about, you know, issues. It seems, oh, no, it seems Black people or Black communities are one of the most underserved communities yes. in America. And mm-hmm. so it goes to talk about the quality of things that we have available to us. In the case that you don't have adequate or uh, you don't have efficient resources to yeah. help you deal with um, suicide uh, as a suicide survivor, someone who attempted it and survived, and people are being uh, affiliated to someone who actually committed suicide, what are the alternative solutions to this problem? Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, black folks in this country, we disproportionately are exposed to a number of race and gender-related stressors. Everything from poverty to uh, health disparities and health inequalities to mass incarceration to trauma to unemployment. Um, We really are dealing with to implicit bias, right, within the healthcare system and within mental health clinicians. We really are dealing with a host of challenges that um, very few other groups um, can understand or relate to. And so alternatives to what we're talking about is I'm going to go back a few steps and go back to um, to um, to to asking folks to think about some of those basic health elements again, 
Um, number one, uh, we got to pay attention. I mean, these stressors are real. Okay. So we're not even talking about the stressors that everybody encounters, like, you know, maybe not having enough money or, you know, that sort of thing I'm talking about. We are dealing with social stressors galore. And then we're dealing with the everyday stressors of life on top of that. And so navigating being a black person in this country in and of itself is, um, uh, research has even shown that in terms of how it can impact our mental health, um, it, it can definitely do so from a negative standpoint, and that includes our physical health. So I, I strongly encourage folks to really, really take a look at their personal health and wellness plan. And if you don't have one, you need one. How are you sleeping? What are you eating? What are you putting into your body? Um, and I know that can be challenging for some, especially those that are in communities that do not have access to adequate um, uh, uh, food and, um, and vegetables and fruits and those food deserts as we know them in so many other, uh, uh, in so many other research projects that have, that have surfaced. Um, so again, I would still say pay very close attention to what you're doing um, and what you're putting in your body. How are you sleeping? How are you eating? And how are you connecting with others? Uh, you mentioned this Yara, earlier in the podcast. We are very community oriented. We look at at life uh, in a very interdependent sort of way, right? Everything takes a village and we are, um, one helps the other and the other helps the other. And as a community, we're able to um, survive uh, unsurmountable and unthinkable challenges. So thinking about ways to take better care of yourselves and to combat some of those stressors that a lot of us have absolutely no control over, right? We have no control over the fact that we're more likely to be pulled over by a police officer uh, or killed when we encounter one. We have no control over the fact that we uh, may not necessarily receive adequate treatment, even though we have insurance and take ourselves to the doctor to get the testing, right? We have, there's a number of social stressors that we have no control over, but we do have to focus on the pieces of this puzzle that we can control. And that is how we care for ourselves, uh, both physically and mentally. Um, there's a growing trend of, of Black women that I've encountered, and it may be Black men too, um, that are starting to get more more serious about meditation um, and, and incorporating mindfulness in certain aspects of their lives to combat the stress. Um, there's a number of groups. There's an app which many of your reader, your listeners may know. It's called I think it's called Meetup, and you find all these small groups in your area. And I've I've come across a few where there's Black women who run, and there's you know other individuals that are simply looking to take care of you know to, to approach their life in a more holistic manner. And so, believe it or not, most of my recommendations have nothing to do with suicide prevention. They have more so um, to do with helping and encouraging individuals to take charge of the health aspects that they can control and then using that as kind of then uh, fuel and ammunition to help support others to do the same. Okay, sweet. I actually want to add to what you just said because all of this falls under the self-care umbrella yes. and so yep. like diet is very very important you have to be you very deliberate about what you put in your body and unfortunately this country does not make it easy so being from ghana like the things that we ate it was you didn't have to think about it it was predominantly healthy if you were eating unhealthy it was by choice but mm. over here it's easier to eat more unhealthy because they've made those things a lot more accessible than the healthy food but all we can do is do the best we can 
to yes. be deliberate about what we eat because you know your health very matters also talking about um groups of men and women coming together there's this organization called girl trek and I subscribe to them. What they do is they try to motivate black women to keep moving, walking, running. It's called Girl Trek. So um, just Google Girl Trek listeners, even you, Dr. Spades, Google Girl Trek. Yeah. It's a community set up by women to encourage and empower predominantly black women to move, to be walking. Sure. And then also sometimes things get very hard in life. And we all go through it, but I want us to always remember that nothing lasts forever. Yes. Well said. That's right. That's right, Yara. Nothing lasts forever. And you can add to this for me, Dr. Space, because you're definitely older than me and you have more life experience than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, you're you're absolutely right. Nothing lasts forever. And I think that um, we have a unique opportunity. I think that with social media, um, some of the apps that we have access to to connect with others locally in the area, as well as those in other parts of the world, um, to find the support that we need, um, regardless of what that may look like. We may end up in some sort of Facebook group, you know, and that's where we're able to get the support we need. Um, And we may end up finding a local meetup group where Black girls run. And so I would just say, yes, absolutely nothing lasts forever. We have been incredibly innovative over the years and through the generations and through the centuries. And, um, and I think it's really important for us to, um, to figure out ways in spite of all the social structural dynamics that are kind of working against us um, to continue to find ways to do what we know we need to do for the betterment of our, of ourselves and of our communities. Okay. Sweet. So now to the follow-up questions, um, about you know the LGBTQ college students, Doctor Bird um, had mentioned something about historical trauma, which um, mm-hmm. I told her we're going to have a whole conversation about that. But as yeah. Black people in America, I think that we need to come to terms with the fact that whether you believe it or not, we are all carrying baggage. That is the historical trauma that yeah. we all have to bear because at some point in your life you'll be reminded in America, especially you'll be reminded that you're not just human, but you're black. And so coming to terms with this and then identifying with, you know, some of these things, these myths, you said we should start debunking like black people don't need therapy. We don't get strong black women. Dude, we're carrying a lot of trauma around. Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. Which is, uh, you know, and and Dr. Bird and I, we're actually going to be working together on on some of this because we both are very uh, incredibly passionate about raising awareness around this issue. And I think one of the, for me, uh, one of the challenges and one of the more disheartening pieces of what I see is um, with the current generation, uh, and it's not a blame game, but we got to face it in order to fix it. And that is, there is a number of folks that have no sense or no idea of historically what Black folks have been through. And I'm talking about other Black folks. And so they have no idea um, what level of historical trauma um, that has been passed on through the generations. They have no idea what we're dealing with. And so all they see is the way we navigate things now. So when I talk to 
whites, particularly whites in the healthcare field, and they say, you know, let's talk a little bit about why we can't get Black folks to be organ donors, or let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about why Black folks are less likely than other groups to go and talk to a mental health counselor. Let's talk a little bit about why, you know, Black folks are less likely to do X, Y, and Z. I have to then go back and give a history lesson, because we are not just doing these things just because it's inconvenient or because we don't want to. There is a long history of mistrust to medical establishments and the medical institution in this country. And there is a reason for that. So young folks need to understand, although they may not totally understand the dynamics of why, you know, why is mama saying, you know, don't you dare, you know, donate anything to science. Um, they may not understand the, the notion of what's happening there, but there's a long history there. And a lot of times in which uh, uh, blacks uh, in this country and in this world has encountered what we call institutional betrayal. And these are cases where we've actually tried to do, or, you know, we were d- doing what we were asked to do, but then the establishment, the institution, whether it's the medical institution or whether it's the criminal justice system or what, I mean, we could talk about this on so many different levels in which we know because of how we were treated in the past, we cannot trust that we're going to be treated adequately. And so you combine all of that with the fact that we're dealing with uh, historical trauma that um, we have not allowed, been allowed to heal openly from that trauma because it's a conversation. This is a trend. You'll see this, Yara. Anytime there is something happening where people cannot talk about it, right? Like, Nobody wants to talk about it. It's off the table. It's hush-hush. There is trauma. There is lack of healing. And there is re-triggering of trauma. That's, and, that's and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that, that's yet another example of, you know, how these things get passed, silently passed generation to generation. Um, and and, and it's, again, we don't talk about it. And then eventually it starts to kind of dissipate, um, at least from the public eye. But we are still silently dealing with these kinds of things. So absolutely. I, then, I, I welcome Yeah. And then you have people still dealing with um, unfair systems, but they don't even know why. And so that's, it's very important right. that we preserve the culture, we preserve the history of our yeah. people so that like, you understand the why and that way you can fix it. Yes, absolutely. And it's funny because I've done some trainings with, um, with mental health clinicians and they were almost all white. And they said to me, I want to help. I want to help. I want to be able to provide support and counsel, you know, Blacks, but what, what do I need to do? Like, how do I, do? And, and so the conversation for me has always gone back to, you have to have a general understanding of Black folks and our history, and you need to understand why we do some of the things we do, and not in a blaming way, but, um, but then you also need to question your own biases and you also need to unpack some of the things that you're um, that you're walking around with that may be discouraging to us because like I tell them on one hand I work with blacks to get them to the therapy chair but then I tell mental health clinicians which are almost always white in many cases that's just how the numbers are working right now well there's reasons for that too but nonetheless they're almost always white and then I have to say now you have to do the work to keep them in the chair right And so it's this ongoing systemic approach that we have to take to this issue. It's not going to be fixed one way or, you know, by one one group 
or one person or even one community doing doing the work. All right. So then the next group of people, the LGBTQ community, and with them, I think a big part of it will have to go back to how very spiritual we are as a group of people in America. And so they were part of the the very high risk demographic. We are part of the very high risk demographic. And um, what would you? Why would you say that is the case? And for me, I'm I'm suspecting that it has something to do with the religious affiliations and what is considered quote unquote natural versus unnatural by definition of some doctrine which was written by people who in a certain time zone decided certain things but um how what 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 do you what would you say that the lgbtq plus community can do to help them uh you know navigate through these things and what can we do to even help support them considering that you know one person cannot define another person's natural for them Mm-hmm. So in terms of how we can support them, I think I, I think um, one of the things that I, I bring that's unique to the conversation around suicide and mental illness is um, just this whole idea of being culturally uh, proficient. OK, um, I, I don't like the term cultural competency as much because it gives the illusion that once you're competent, you've arrived and you stay there. And I think it's a journey that you stay on for really the rest of your lives and the rest of your careers. Um, and so um, and so just thinking about this more broadly from a cultural proficiency standpoint, it's important to have an idea to of, of the culture itself. Right. And so once again, just like when we're talking about black folks, when we're talking about LGBTQ communities, there's so much diversity there. So we have to really disaggregate, which means deconstruct and take apart the information that we have uh, on on um, on suicide and look specifically at LGBTQ communities. And so in doing so, I think it's important to get a sense of what those cultural beliefs are, what are certain cultural norms, um, what are some of those stigmatizing beliefs, both internal within the group as well as external and outside of the group towards them. Um, And so looking at the different um, kinds of uh, uh, homophobic Uh, encounters that individuals are having, right? That is a risk factor in and of itself, Um, just encountering over and over again um, um, uh, discrimination as a result of their sexual orientation. And and that is incredibly stressful, especially we see this um, in the younger population. And so, um, and and then we need to also make sure that we have um, culturally specific prevention and intervention efforts. Okay, so um, in, in, in cases where we're targeting specifically LGBTQ youth, that prevention or intervention program may look very different if we're not targeting the youth of the population, right? Let's say we're looking at middle-aged folks. Um, so, so there's really not one answer, but I, I do think a lot of what I've talked about um, in terms of ways to help an individual um, would apply here. And that was, of course, going back to the human level, you know, talk mm-hmm. and, and asking them, you know, how they're feeling, um, helping them to connect with others, continuing to check in, um, connecting them with um, perhaps professionals that can help. Um, a lot of the schools nowadays do have uh, school psychologists and people that are actually on staff and that are paid and, and that can chime in if or when needed. Um, but I, I think those are some of the things. And of course, knowing specific risk factors for the group 
you're talking about. Um, and it, again, it, it can vary if we're depending on if we're talking about gays or lesbians or transsexuals or right. So, um, but there are some common themes. And so just to be familiar with what some of those warning signs are, um, are important. Then the last group of people, my favorites, no more <laughs> college <laughs> students, particularly black college students. Ooh, well, you know, it's a loaded, it's a loaded, it's a loaded question because um, I, I, have to, I have to back up just a little and say that when we're talking about Black college students, we are talking about a significant proportion of folks that are come from disadvantaged backgrounds, right? So like me, I'm the first family, first in the family to go to college, first generation college student. Um, and so um, we're more disproportionately likely to be first-generation college students. We're more likely to come from backgrounds where um, our socioeconomic status is uh, significantly lower than others. We're less likely to. We're more likely to come from families that have any any sort of wealth accumulation. We're more likely to come from families where um, we've been more exposed to violence. I mean, just looking at social science research, disproportionately, we um, we have uh, we encounter a number of issues even before we get to the college campus, right? And so I would say um, um, when we're talking about mental health or mental illness and suicide among college students, when you're looking at a specific, Black college students, when you're looking specifically at a population of people who already come from um, a number of um, uh, disadvantaged statuses or occupy a number of disadvantaged statuses, we have to think about the ways in which their transition to college life, the culture of college, can look very different than folks that do not come from these backgrounds. Backgrounds. And so, um, and so uh, some of the research that I've looked at has really kind of confirmed that college students, Black college students, when they make the transition to, to college and they get to the college campus, and then in addition to being a Black college student, they're a Black person in general and society still having to deal with the off-campus life that may come about as a result of that, right? Um, we have to support them in very unique ways. Uh, it, it, it would certainly help. Um, I think one of the advantages of, of taking on the status of being a college student as a Black person is you do get access to um, on-campus have student counseling centers, although they're not always easy to get into. I acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, but there are some resources that you can tap into that you don't always have when you're not a college student. Um, and so being able to connect with um, some of the on-campus organizations that um, BGSA and a number of other, and, and BSA, BUS, the United Student at Kent State, and most college campuses have something to that effect. Um, because what's interesting is a lot of the research actually finds that when African Americans and Black students have um, a strong sense of identity and heritage, heritage and a sense of their history, that that actually is a protective factor uh, against suicide. So looking at being a student on campus, connect with the groups that uh, most closely align with your experiences and your, um, your challenges even, and then being able to tap into some of the existing resources that you didn't have. I found being a college student, a black college student, first generation, one of the stressors that colleges and universities do not even shake a stick at was the family stressors. Um, I'm talking about, I mean, they were intense and they were intense from the moment I stepped into that campus into the, 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 the moment I stepped off 
stop. And so that was um, really unique and challenging. And I think we as um, as college uh, faculty and, and university staff members, we need to really think about ways to support you all in better ways uh, in that way. But yeah, I hope some of that helped. Oh yeah, it did. It did. And I'd actually like to add to that because um, I was in a, uh, a school in my university, which was not very represented when it came to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, black faculty and black staff. Oh, and yeah. so that did not help because the only one black advisor who was there, well, she's no more there. So like, it goes back to saying, um, yep. you don't have people with whom you can relate. You feel out of place and things can, be over- can become very overwhelming. And it was so easy for me to say that people who were in my kind of situation, which was apart from financial aid, we had to self-support throughout everything. Yes. It, like the needs didn't that the, what they had set in in place did not meet our needs, and then you also have underrepresentation. I like yes. to take this time out to shout out, like you know, Dr. Tamika Ellington because she's been oh, yeah. solid for Kent yeah. State Fashion School right now. She's the associate dean, and she is very deserving of that position. Yes. But she has spent her life fighting for black and brown students at yes. Kent State, and she has done an amazing job. But we still need more representation. This is an example, because yes. a lot of the times when I heard people complain, they were mostly Black kids. And then if you were yes. like me who had to self-support, I was work- like, you know, someone like me, I was working night shift, and then I'll come yes. to class not sleeping to the yes. point that teachers were freaking out for me. But when they make arrangements, they don't take any of these things into consideration. And they're like, well, there's a system in place. That is, it might be equality, but it's not equity. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get it, Yara. That was definitely my experiences too. Um, and Dr. Tamika Ellington is a dear friend of mine, and she is, she is doing uh, amazing work. But I, I think those are the sorts of things that we have to uh, keep in mind when it comes to um, our students and meeting the students' needs, because there's so much that can come with students when you get to the college campus that most faculty, particularly privileged faculty that don't come from these sorts of backgrounds, never have never thought about or have never had to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those are all my questions. Surprisingly, I could pick up some <laughs> more, but you know, I'm going to save some of your knowledge for later because this has been so informative. I have learned a lot because um, we think we know until we actually hit with knowledge and like, oh shoot, I really didn't know. <laughs> You know, so thank you for that. The last thing is now a question about this. And I know you've, you've done most of your research on the Black population in America. Have you or do you plan to conduct research on other Black populations outside of America? Yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. And I, I um, I'm looking forward to doing more of that. Uh, I spent last summer, a portion of the summer in Kenya, uh, and I was collecting data there on a college campus. And so my co- two of my colleagues um, and I, we had a research team of three, and I brought the suicide component and the mental illness component, and a colleague of mine brought the, um, uh, the trauma component. And then my other colleague is a public health scholar that looks at um, women's health in general. And so what we did is we went over to do some, to collect data, to get um, some information on uh, how uh, how to raise awareness among Kenyan college students um, around the issue of trauma, mental illness, and suicide. So we're in the process of analyzing that data now. And uh, it was incredibly, incredibly um, a fruitful uh, study. And I learned a lot and I made a lot of connections internationally. And I am looking forward to doing um, more of that work. So yes, absolutely. 
Awesome. I'll definitely, if you need a hookup in Ghana, you know, I got you. So I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Okay. I will. I I will. I'm glad I know. I'm glad we have connected. I'm going to hold you to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kanisha Spates, for all this information and knowledge that you've shared with us. We are very grateful, and I am sure that many people have picked a thing or two or three from all this information that you've given us. Now let's go to what's happening around. As an African woman living in America, I know so many people think that What is going on right now is just an American problem. It's just an African-American problem. But if we're being real, the system that created this affects us all. Black people are the global majority, but we are the most disrespected, most disregarded group of people on this earth. And that needs to change. Speaking as an African... I realized how mutually ignorant I was about my fellow black people in America when I came here. And sadly, that story also cuts across the other direction. So what am I saying? All this mumble, jumbo, mumbling I'm talking about. I'm saying that is that being black means you belong to a family whether you like it or not. And like a family... We have our issues, yet when someone tries to set the house on fire, we band together and in unity, we drive that person away. And more than anything, right now is the time for black people all over the world to band together to call for justice. But don't forget, while we're doing this, let's not forget sustainability and longevity with the solutions we're trying to propose. How do we prevent these things from happening? Our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers are pushed to the point of wanting to kill themselves as if killing them and killing us is not bad enough because the system has been working against us for such a long time. Let's have the hard conversations about how we can change things from the inside out to make life more comfortable for black people all over the world thank you once again for joining me power to the people and i will tell you later clink we've got to stay alive we're gonna chase those crazy chase those